0: Black people have been fighting for liberation for centuries.
1: I have
2: a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its dreams.
0: One question that continuously rises to the surface as we see generations on this fight is, what does the quest for Black liberation look like? For me, it looks like everyone having access to healthy foods no matter where they live, no matter how much money they make, and no matter their particular beliefs in life, According to Feeding America, an estimated 24% of Black people in the U.S. experienced food insecurity in 2020. You might have heard of these experiences being called food deserts or food apartheid. There are many food deserts and food apartheid in various cities across the United States. That looks like several things. It looks like going into a grocery store and having very limited access to fresh produce. It could also look like having said fresh produce only accessible if you've driven any particular amount of miles, maybe 20 or more, outside of your immediate neighborhood. Growing up in Detroit in the 70s and the 80s, I didn't experience food deserts very much. But over the past 25 to 30 years, I've seen a very deep change in the city. Food deserts and food apartheids are far more common than I'd like to admit. But it also got me very curious as to what people are doing to create food liberation in not only Detroit, but various cities across the United States. I think today's story is really gonna hit home about what people are doing to make a change in their communities. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm El Simone Scott, and this is Proof.
3: The world of food is vast. That's exactly why Augusta Escoffier School of Culinary Arts offers a wide range of programs. Take a class in plant-based culinary arts or hospitality and restaurant operations management and so much more. With campuses in Boulder, Colorado and Austin, Texas, Escoffier focuses on food innovation and technique development. And if being on campus isn't the right fit for you, Escoffier offers 100% professional online diplomas and degrees with real world externships. Graduates can enter their careers with practical skills and knowledge, setting the stage for career success. If you want more information, visit Escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E S C O F F I E R.edu. Hey, listeners, Kevin Pang here. Looking for the perfect way to wow your guests this holiday season? Well, you're in luck. Driscoll's Sweetest Batch Blueberries are a -a one-of-a-kind proprietary variety, which are extra sweet, juicy, aromatic, and crisp. To top it off, they add a pop of jewel-toned color to any holiday charcuterie board. For more grazing board inspiration and to learn about Driscoll's berries, visit driscolls.com/proof. That's driscoll slash proof Driscoll's only the finest berries.
0: Food writer and reporter Ashia Auburg brings it to us.
4: Mahidin Labah was living in Syracuse, New York, when he received a call that would change the trajectory of his life. The call was from a group of Somali Bantu people living in Maine. The Somali Bantu are an ethnic group from southwestern Somalia. They needed Mahidin's help. Being Somali Bantu himself, Mahidin felt a kinship with the voices over the phone, so he heard them out.
1: They said, could you come in, help us to organize and make a non-profit organization?
4: The request sounded straightforward enough. But as they spoke, it became clear to Mahidan that it wasn't just about creating a non-profit. The Somali Bantu community in Maine wanted Mahidan's help creating a cooperative. They wanted to build what would become known as the Somali Bantu Community Association, or the SBCA. Part of that involved building a farm it was important for the Somali Bantu in Maine to find a place where they could grow and sell their own food. A quick primer on the Somali Bantu community, land has always represented economic, political, and social power.
2: Land was something that we originated from.
4: That's our man, Mahidan. Mahidin is a busy person, so you'll hear his voice from when I talk to him in person and over the phone.
2: Like, our spiritual definition of land is where human being started from, like human being started from clay, soil. And then our community believes that without land, there's no life.
4: The importance of owning land really hits home when you look at the history of the Somali Bantu. The Somali Bantu were originally an enslaved people, taken to Somalia by Arab slave traders in the 19th century. They went through centuries of oppression as farm laborers under enslavement laws brought on by Italian colonizers. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, when Somali Bantu refugees began arriving in the United States. Many, like the Somali Bantu in Maine, wanted an opportunity to finally return to their agricultural roots in a meaningful and an empowering way. Mahidin says that farming was the livelihood of many Somali Bantu people before they fled Somalia.
1: In Africa, you farm to put food on the table, and everybody who is capable of participating or contributing to that is welcome, like as a family, mom, dad, kids, everybody. So I was introduced to farming like that.
4: However, many like Mahidan himself had to abandon their farming lifestyles in the early 90s as the civil war in Somalia intensified.
2: All of a sudden, People with guns, we don't know where they came from, started flooding into our area, chasing people away. So once they chased us from where we were, we, we started getting on the move.
4: Those who were able to flee tried to emigrate to Kenya. However, to even get there, they first had to endure an arduous journey by foot that lasted anywhere from two to four weeks. They were risking getting caught by other ethnic Somali militia. Mahidin and many others eventually settled in refugee camps in Kenya. Mahidin recalled what it felt like once he got to Kenya. He said that he always felt like wherever they went, his people were seen and treated as if they were at the bottom of the social hierarchy.
1: Somali Bantus were just facilitators of those people's life. Like, you just build their house, you do their plumbing. You just make sure these people live in a comfortable way. That is who we were back home in Africa. We were builders, constructors, uh, do the hard work.
4: But at the Kenyan refugee camps, something changed.
1: When we came out of the country to Kenya, we have seen other Kenyans who are like us, dressed up go to school, college, do everything for themselves. Well, we started thinking like, Ooh, why they do that and we can't do that. And that is when we started mobilizing ourselves.
4: Mahita knew that he could not continue with their people being oppressed. The United States offered the possibility of a new life. Somali Bantu people settled in different American cities. Atlanta, Columbus, Salt Lake City, Pittsburgh. Mahidin and his family settled in Syracuse, New York, and it was about one year after he arrived when he got the call asking to move to Maine. At the time, Maine was becoming a new hotspot where Somali Bantu people wanted to settle. Starting a community organization and a farm was a large undertaking for anyone to consider. But Mahidan was one of four people who went to high school in the refugee camps in Kenya, and he spoke English. While in Kenya, Mahidan also founded a school.
1: I started a school called Semalibantu Primary School.
4: So, coupled with Mahidan's ability to speak English, navigate complex nonprofit paperwork, and skillfully farm, it became clear why Mahidan was chosen as their potential leader. Mahidan found himself liking Maine.
1: The ruralness. The fresh air, you know, you can breathe without smelling a fume. I'm like, okay, I like here. And then I sent my family to here in October of 2005. And then that's how I completely moved to Maine.
4: Maine was appealing for many reasons, but what was most promising was the prospect of farmland. According to the Maine Farmland Trust, there's over 1,300,000 acres of farmland in Maine. Mahidan's first item of business was figuring out how they were going to organize a nonprofit that would run the farm. Mahidan wanted to create an organization that was for Somali Bantu and by Somali Bantu. In a sense, they were starting an affinity based movement, or a collection of people organized based on shared identity, characteristics, or life experiences. And Mahidan believed that the only way for his people to become liberated was to do it on their own terms.
1: Our job as a non-profit running person was to uplift people who are on the lowest a human being can be.
4: But it wasn't going to be easy. The first barriers that Mahidan encountered while starting his new life in Maine were mainly administrative. While trying to secure land, he didn't have access to credit. He also had to navigate the complex legal language when it came to land leases. Mahidan says the systems were very different from the ones he was familiar with.
2: Back home in Africa, you did not need a lawyer to draft a lease. Like, lease was always verbal and ended in handshake. And 99% of the time, people followed the agreements.
4: And then there was the issue of having to navigate racism and discrimination in Maine.
3: When the refugees began arriving 15 years ago, many longtime residents were resentful. Lewiston's economy was tanking. Businesses were closing. Jobs were scarce. The newcomers were seen as welfare freeloaders.
4: In this 60-minute segment, a Somali Bantu store owner is interviewed about her experience, which sounded all too familiar to Mahidin. They say, why you come here? Go back where you come from.
2: People think... We are in Maine just for welfare benefits. We do not want to work. And when I say we, it it was about us, the Somalis.
4: Mahidin recalled the time he was trying to purchase a tractor. He was hoping to use it for the farm.
1: I went to this tractor sales place and I'm standing in line. This person is not acknowledging me. I approached him, I said, I'm looking for a used mid-sized tractor. He's like, seriously? What tractor? Why? I'm like, I'm a farmer and I have my money. He's like, you're kidding me. You can't be a farmer. I'm like, I'm a farmer and I want to buy a tractor. He's like, don't waste my time. And I ended up going online and buying this tractor we have online. Because I could not even convince somebody with my own money.
4: Experiences like this one, though, only solidified Mahidin's determination to start an organization for the Somali Bantu community. When
0: we return, Muhiden begins building from the ground up.
3: Who doesn't like trying new wines? Naked Wines makes it super easy to do just that. Not only do they deliver wine directly to your front door, they also fund some of the world's most experienced, independent winemakers to produce their passion projects. When you join their 300,000 member angel community, you're helping to fund hundreds of exclusive wines you can't find anywhere else. Each wine is the culmination of the passion and artistry of an experienced Vintner. So join the community and get your angel wings. Get started today and save 100 bucks off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just thirty nine ninety nine. Visit nakedwines.com slash holidayproof21 and have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler's sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more.
4: And now, back to our story. Mahidan's quest to liberate his community is a story with echoes in history. The Black Panther Party was one of the most prominent organizations that ever fought for Black liberation.
5: The Black Panther Party grew out of a soil that was increasingly enriched by Black social movements. That's
4: historian and author Robin Spencer. Dr. Spencer specializes in the history of Black freedom movements in the United States. I couldn't help but think about the challenges that Mahidin endured when establishing the Somali Bantu Community Association and how that paralleled the barriers that organizations like the Black Panther Party faced. So I wanted to hear more about the Black Panther Party's legacy from Dr. Spencer.
5: The Panthers emerged at the same time as a growing Black power movement. Black power was premised on Black pride, Black solidarity, Black unity. This idea of digging deep into common roots, valorizing an African ancestry, seeking common ground.
4: In a documentary about the Black Panthers' legacy, a member named Daruba bin Wahad explains what the Black Panthers wanted.
2: Many people don't understand that the Black Panther Party's 10-point programming platform was basically a statement of principles. We wanted decent housing. We wanted to determine the destiny of our community.
4: These principles and the idea of wanting to determine the destiny of their own community sounded similar to Mahidan and the Somali Bantu's goals. But how to go about achieving self-determination was a question the civil rights movement encountered and one Mahedin would eventually face.
5: At the time that the Panthers were beginning, there was a lot of debate over interracialism as a strategy in Black social protest. There had been a long history of Black people, white people, and others working together for social change in groups like the NAACP. Many organizations like CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, was founded to fight for Black civil rights as a interracial organization. There was also, however, a history of affinity-based organizing, organizations like the Black Panthers. The idea of Black self-determination, the idea of Black people taking on for themselves the mantle of leadership and exercising authority and the power of seeing themselves in authority that was something that was seen as really essential to moving forward Black politics at the time.
4: Should the Somali Bantu community seek out allies and pursue an interracial strategy in their quest for farmland? Or should they keep it an affinity-based movement and go about it on their own? Mahedon was torn.
3: Green Pan changed the way people cook when they launched the original healthy ceramic nonstick back in 2007. And this could be the year that Green Pan changes cooking for you too. America's Test Kitchen is partnering with Green Pan for our holiday cooking sweepstakes. Proof listeners, here's your chance to win a Valencia Pro Ceramic Nonstick 16 piece cookware set, a Green Pan Premier Slow Cooker, a Green Pan Premier Essential Pan, and a Green Pan Gourmet Grill. Enter now by visiting our Instagram page at Test Kitchen by January 7th, 2022 for your chance to bring home the Green Pan Grand Prize this holiday season. Green Pan, what you cook on matters.
4: And now, back to our story. At the beginning, Mahedon tried to secure farmland on his own, but every time he did secure a lease, it was a short-term deal. Over time, the SBCA hopped across more than five pieces of farmland. This seemed odd to me. If you know anything about farming, then you know land is crucial. Typically, when farmers secure a piece of land, they're able to stay longer than Mahedon had. I asked Mahedon why they had moved so often.
1: We could not get a five-year lease. Everybody was telling us, okay, we we'll give you one-year lease. Nobody will sell us a property.
4: Mahidin believes that landlords didn't want to extend that ownership to the Somali-Bantu people living in Maine. This was a long-standing obstacle that Mahedin kept encountering. But one day, a new partnership presented itself. Maheden was introduced to the director of an organization whose mission is to support land access for the next generation of farmers.
6: My name is Ian McSweeney, and my work is to reconnect people with land and to really reform our relationship to land.
4: Ian is the director of the Agrarian Trust.
6: Agrarian Trust is a national nonprofit organization focused on a few key areas. One is raising the issue for the land in transition.
4: Ian explained why it was important for him to get into this work around land access.
6: The demographics of farmland ownership place us in a point in history when upwards of 400 million acres of farmland in this country are transitioning from one owner to the next. Land is power. Land is equity. Land is autonomy for people. And so much of what we depend upon in our food systems, in communities, depends upon who owns land, who holds tenure on land.
4: Forging this new partnership was a gamble for Mahedon, because in the past, these types of partnerships failed. Mahedon was initially skeptical.
2: I tried not to get excited because I got excited several times before when we found pieces of land that are suitable for our organization.
4: Ian understood that to get Mahidan on board, they needed to establish common ground.
6: It takes understanding what resources people have, what uh, knowledge people have, what wisdom people have and moving out of a framework that we're stuck in in this country and we're stuck in in the capitalist society that those with wealth are all powerful and all-knowing. So it's how to value people for who they are and what they bring forward and then hold the collective of everyone's assets, everyone's resources, everyone's wisdom to move things forward.
4: After listening carefully to Mahedin, The agrarian trust met the Somali Bantu Community Association where they were. That meant understanding the breadth of oppression and discrimination that the Somali Bantu people have faced while in Somalia, Kenya, and now in the United States. Ian told me his thoughts on the oppression that Black farmers face in the U.S. and how this parallels with the Somali Bantu people's experience as enslaved farmers
6: newer first-generation Black farmers who come here as immigrants, refugees, as new Americans, and Black farmers who have been here for generations since they were stolen from their land and separated from their community and enslaved and brought here to build wealth for white landowners. Um, and, and so they have been here for generations and, and they have quite a different story than new Americans coming in here. But, you know, both face, because of the color of their skin, the significant racism and both face a, a reality where land theft goes on daily.
4: Mahedon and the SBCA decided to give the partnership with the agrarian Trust a try. And with that partnership came an important framework that was used to help the Somali Bantu community on their mission to gain land. This framework was called the Agrarian Commons. Here's Ian.
6: The Agrarian Commons model is a community-centered land trust that holds land in a commons-based structure to ensure access and equity to farmers.
4: Within these agrarian commons are land parcels that are held in trust. These pieces of land are then controlled by small farmers or community organizations like the SBCA.
6: And so the ability to focus with them to create a model and then focus with them to manifest that fundraising work, manifest the real estate transaction work, to bring land into this community-centered land trust structure allows them that land ownership and tenure to carry forward.
4: You're probably wondering. So that's it? This model was the key to Mahidan and the Somali Bantu people finally achieving land? Not really. While the agrarian commons model played a huge role, Ian was honest. It wasn't just this model that they used as a tool to try to get land. It was also, in Ian's words,
6: "We Agrarian Trust are a, are a white-led nonprofit. We." in partnership with the Somali Bantu Community Association, were able to leverage the color of our skin in ways that they were not by themselves. So our collective work was able to go further than individual work might have.
4: Mahidin understood what this privilege meant, so he strategically refrained from putting his name on any contracts because in the past, whenever he did, landlords would never sell him land. It was a strategy he used to leverage the privileges that came with being allied with the Agrarian Trust.
1: I did not put my name out there until the deal was almost done.
4: In the summer of 2020, Mahedon and the Agrarian Trust visited a piece of land that they were hoping to get. When they got to the space, it seemed perfect. Mahidan and the Somali Bantu could already envision setting up land for the hundreds of farmers that were going to be a part of their community. Charlie Hillard, the owner of the property, was there to greet them.
1: He was so great, and he was like, I want this property to be farming. I don't want anything else. And he turned away everybody, and that's how we got this.
4: Charlie describes why it was important for the SPCA to farm on this land in a clip from the Agrarian Trust.
3: The fact that it's going to be kept farm land, I think, is great because this piece has been in the family since back in the 50s. We are hoping for what's uh, in the works now, that somebody will farm it, will keep it organic. Um, that, 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 that's a great thing.
4: In the summer of 2020, the Somali Bantu Community Association acquired the 104-acre piece of land.
1: This will be the permanent space. Uh, we have a 99-year rolling lease, which means one year ends, another year is added at the end. So a rolling lease.
4: This fall, my sister and I took a trip to Maine to visit yeah.
1: Oh
4: wow. It was planted
1: in June. And ah. what's the
4: name of this corn?
1: African Flint
4: corn. Wow. As we were driving through the rural landscape, my sister and I were a bit uneasy. Um, It was our first time in Maine, and all we could gather from our surroundings were open fields and on the occasion, an outdated Trump sign. We even began to lose service as we were driving closer to the destination. Though I am not Somali Bantu, I empathize with what it means to be a Black person in a predominantly white space. It was approaching the moment my sister and I were about to start panicking at the loss of phone and GPS service when we saw a sign that gave us a sigh of relief. It was a wooden sign with a beautifully painted corn symbol, and big black words that read, Liberation Farms. Liberation Farms has become a critical program for the Somali Bantu community living in Maine. In partnership with the Agurian Trust, Mahinan and the Somali Bantu community raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to acquire this land. They received tremendous support from individuals, businesses, farmers, organizations, and foundations all across the country. When my sister and I visited, there were acres of luscious green land. A dozen goats greeted us, and the structures of hoop houses were starting to be built. After listening to Mahidin tell us how the farm supports Somali Bantu farmers and their community, we could envision what having all this space would allow them to do in the future. Their dreams of owning permanent farmland were finally becoming a reality.
2: For the first time, we have a piece of land which any Somaliban Bantu can drop in and walk around without anybody being interrupted, without somebody asking, you're trespassing into my property. And this is huge piece of land. It has a green land, it has structures, buildings, it has goats that you can watch,
4: Mahidan told me why they picked the name Liberation Farms.
1: Liberation Farm was taken by the farmers. We had this big meeting. We had four names and for the farmers to pick one of them. This was all written in English. I had to interpret, explain, discuss what every piece was. And people were like, that one, Liberation Farm, that one. Now we have been liberated.
4: Liberation may have different words in different languages. But what remains true is the power that the meaning of liberation holds. It's important that there are spaces for communities who have been oppressed to come together and define what they need in order to move forward. In order to feel liberated, says Mahidan.
2: Individuals who are here right now knows what it means to have a peaceful transition. Right now we know, we can't take for granted that liberation will be something that's readily available. You know, what we went through, the states, all the hardship, all the problems. So right now, we have been liberated. Now we have a farm, we have everything we needed.
4: Mahidin has dreams for the future of Black liberation in Maine. He and the SPCA plan to welcome more than 200 Somali Bantu farmers to their farmland. They plan to harvest flint corn, which can be used to make Somali dishes like mufo, a delicious flatbread, and Soar, a cornmeal porridge. Ten youth are also a part of the SBCA's Kashiki Youth Culture Program. Seven of them are African-American and the other three are African.
1: Maine will no longer be the widest state. Plus, there are other African-Americans who are moving to Maine who would not before, because now we have enough Blacks, so they will be comfortable coming to Maine and living in Maine before they could not, because they were scared what's going to happen. So now we are placeholders for others who would be interested in coming to Maine, and the impact will be huge.
4: For Mahedon, it's not just about getting land. It goes deeper than that. It's about a clear path towards freedom, towards health for the Somali Bantu community, In the end, an allyship model helped Mahidin and the Somali band to achieve self-determination. Eventually, and hopefully, it can also mean a clearer path towards cultural acceptance, too.
1: And I think uh, the fight will be huge, for sure.
4: Fights for liberation are happening all across our food system. And Black communities are at the forefront of a lot of these fights. All of our journeys are tied to each other. So what does it mean for you to work with another community in their fight towards liberation? What would you have to learn? What would you have to put on the line? Thanks to
0: Ashia Ahlberg for bringing us this story that was originally reported for Cuisine Noir. To stay updated and to support the Somali Bantu community, check out the podcast notes to access their website. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, L. Simone Scott, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters.
4: I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert.
1: I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer.
5: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring,
0: sound design, and mixing by
6: Matt Boynton
0: and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post production, and our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to the editor of Cuisine Noir, V. Cherie Williams, who assigned this story to Ashia.
2: Jack Bishop.
0: Is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. And...
2: David Nussbaum.
0: Is America's Test Kitchen CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season. Caller, Naked Wines. Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts. Green Pan Cookware, and Driscoll's. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.